and, and God didn't answer the prayer that you prayed. And maybe somebody told you something about the Bible, and after they said that thing, you thought, well, I can't believe anything in the Bible. I can't listen to any of that. I don't know what your story is, but here's what I know about your story. I know that if your story was my story, if I experienced what you had experienced, I would have responded in the exact same way. This is not a judge thing, okay? I'm not, I'm not here to should all over you. Things do, people do things that make sense to them. Your response to your faith and your experiences makes perfect sense to you. That's your life. And nobody knows your life better than you do. But over the next few minutes, my agenda is that I would like to urge you, would you please reconsider engaging with the faith of your past? And by re-engage, I, I simply mean, would you be willing to take a step back in the direction of the God who loves you? A small step might mean um, you come back to church. Maybe next week, maybe Christmas Eve, maybe every week. Maybe it's pray for the first time in a long time. And, and your prayer could, could just start something like this. Dear God, you haven't heard from me in a long time. Just, just start that way. Re-engaging for you could mean any number of things that are significant for you. But this is the perfect time to re-engage. And that's why I want to encourage you to do that. And here's something that, that, that you know about yourself. This, this is true of you and you know it. You know that in your heart and in your soul and, and that inside part of you, the real you part of you, there's a little bit of light. There's a spark. <coughs> there's an ember. And every once in a while, it kind of dings your conscience. Every one, once in a while, somebody says something to you and, and you hear it in a special way. And, and it pokes you. And it... You should reconsider, right? That's what the poking is. You, you should think about that again. You know what? You should ask that question. Or you should really answer that question yourself. It just keeps prompting you, that small voice that keeps coming back. And we believe, and maybe you believe the same thing, we believe that is the light of life, that the light of Christ that you invited into your life perhaps many, many years ago. Consider re-engaging. Now, I want you to think for a minute. Uh, this, is, this is almost going to be like one of those Facebook quizzes, okay? Which Christmas character are you? Right? You take those quizzes. They steal your information. And you wonder why they hack you. Um, today, today, I want to I I ask you about a story. But to do that, I need to tell you a story. But for you to understand that story, I'm going to need to tell you a story. Okay, so three stories today. I'm going to ask you about a story, then I'm going to tell you about a story so that you'll be able to understand the story. All right, so that's where we're going. Story time at Into One today. Woohoo! So much fun. Uh, I want to tell you the story about uh, the person that I think that I most identify with in the Christmas story. And maybe you'll find that it's the same thing for you. So I will ask you this completely random question. You didn't see this coming at all. Who do you most identify with in the Christmas story? It's Mary? Not so much. Joseph? We don't know that much about him. Shepherds? Not particularly. The wise men? The magi? 
the Magi? What even are those guys? Uh, angels? Really? Baby Jesus? Well, that's Theo. That's what he's thinking right now. <laughs> but if we're going to be honest, and I think we should be honest because I think that's a good thing to be, the person that I honestly, I honestly feel like I identify with most in the Christmas story is what might be known as the villain of Christmas, the Grinch of the Nativity, good old King Herod. And I'll tell you why. It has nothing to do with the crown or that kind of thing, but I believe that there's a little bit of King Herod in all of us. King Herod was the client king of Judea, and that means that Rome had made him king. Here you go. There's your job. He's king of Judea. But Herod wasn't Jewish. And, of course, that drove all the Jewish people right up the wall. How can you be our king? He was the king of Judea in the time that Jesus was born. Herod was very smart. He was very talented. He was incredibly politically astute. Very, very ambitious. And he was known as a builder because he built uh, the Jewish temple. And he, uh, he built port cities, and he bore uh, theme parks and, and aqueducts. Uh, he was an, ex an absolutely extraordinary person when it came to his talents, what he could do and what he could put together. But his ambition got the best of him. And um, that's where there is a little bit of Herod, I think, in all of us. Before we get to that Bible part, uh, I want to tell you my favorite Herod story. So this is story number one. Do you remember when you were in high school or maybe it was university and you studied the story of Julius Caesar? Does anybody remember Julius Caesar? You remember that the Senate murdered him and there was that poignant moment, a tu Brute, and you, Brutus, coming back to you at all? Well, that's about 44 BC, just to put you on the timeline there. So here's the cast. Uh, when he died, his nephew Octavius eventually went on to become Caesar Augustus. That's a little bit of a spoiler, but that's what happened. Julius Caesar had a friend named Mark Anthony, and, his, uh, and Julius's nephew Octavius decided that they were going to avenge the death, the murder of Julius Caesar. So they went out, and they tracked down, and they destroyed all of the people responsible for the death of Octavius's uncle, Julius Caesar. Well, as time went by, everybody realized that uh, as all of the other guys, important guys, are getting destroyed, eventually Mark Anthony and Octavius were going to become uh, into conflict because there's only room for one sheriff in Rome. So both these guys are working about building up their power, their control, their influence, and so they are the, amassing those relationships and getting in good with certain legions uh, in, in the Roman army. And then here's where... Herod comes in. King Herod from Judea had befriended Mark Anthony and his wife. He had a very famous wife from Egypt, right? And her name was Cleopatra. You're doing so well. Uh, and this reminds us again, um, this is a story that I'm telling, but this is a story about real people, real people in real places. And so this is how the story goes. The Roman citizens hated, hated, hated Cleopatra. They were afraid that she was going to bring Egypt and Rome together, make them one big happy family, and that she would put herself on the top as queen, and they would absolutely be miserable. They had plenty of misgivings about Cleopatra, and they came up all the time. 
Well, King Herod liked to host parties, party kind of guy, and he liked to connect. So he had Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, and he gave them parties, and he, and he continued to uh, send them lavish gifts, and he would connect with them. He even supported them in a rebellion outside of Alexandria. And so over time, Mark Anthony and Octavius become more and more famous and more and more powerful, and it led to civil war. And unfortunately for Herod, he bet on the wrong pony. Mark Anthony and his legions were defeated almost immediately. They hightailed it back to Alexandria, both um, Cleopatra and Mark Anthony, and then they go and there's, there's a giant sea battle there, and the, the navies now go at it, and once again they lose to Octavius. It's about 31 BC, and this is after that battle, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra both commit suicide to prevent themselves from being captured. Time passes, things got to go on a little bit. 27 BC, Octavius becomes the first Roman emperor. Civil war is now over, and things happen fast. The change is coming. Herod is in Judea, and he realizes, uh-oh, uh-oh, I backed the wrong person. Things are about to get ugly for me. I got one of three options. So the first one is just go ahead and kill yourself, right? Get it over with. Number two, you can run. But you know what? They're going to find you. Number three, or you just kind of hunker down, right? Stop posting on your Instagram account and hope that they just ignore you. Maybe he's gone. But Herod, Herod was so politically astute. He was so ambitious. And he was so all about his legacy that he did something that was absolutely unbelievable. And it turned out to be a huge, smart political move. Herod got on a boat, and he went to the island of Rhodes, where he knew that Octavius, who had now become Caesar Augustus, was hanging out. So Herod shows up without an appointment, and essentially says, hi, can I talk to the Roman emperor, please? And everybody's looking at him, and they're going, like, why, are, why are you here? Uh, you're an enemy of the state. Uh, you're on our list of things to do, but you came here to us on purpose. And so Caesar Augustus is going, like, what's going on? Who's out there? And he goes, well, it's Herod of Judea. And he goes, he's the guy on the list, right? He's there because he supported my adversary. He's my enemy. He's here. That seems a little odd, doesn't it? He goes, all right, bring him in. And so they bring him in, and then it's game on for Herod. And Herod gives a spectacular speech. He says, as you know, I was a friend of your enemy, Mark Anthony. And as you know, I was a loyal supporter from the very beginning. I supported him through the Civil War, and I supported your enemy right up to the very end. What you know about me is that when I pledge my loyalty, I am loyal to the end. Oh, great Caesar, I pledge my loyalty now to you. Ah, oh, Caesar Augustus is amazed, right? He was so impressed. He was not expecting this at all. And so not only did he not take away the kingdom of Judea, he actually gave him an upgrade. And Herod walked away with his former kingdom, plus Samaria, plus Jericho, and plus Gaza. This King Herod is a super bright guy. He's politically astute. 
He's extremely ambitious. The thing that got him in trouble was that he was so committed to control his own legacy. And they just made decisions like one after another after another without thinking of consequences. So he changed his will four times. He had 10 wives. He had a bunch of sons. And every few years, he would change his mind on who would be the right son to be the next king. Then he would change his will. And then shortly change his mind again. And to change his mind, he had to have that son executed. So after a little while, the sons are kind of looking for other jobs, right? And you go, don't worry about me, Dad. I've decided I'm going to be an organic farmer of essential oils. So I'm taken care of, right? Don't worry about me. I don't need to be king. Herod was so committed to controlling his kingdom that he kept pointing everything towards his legacy. He wanted there to be someone on that throne for years and years and years and forever that was related to him. He wanted to be the start of that. So he killed um, one of his wives. He also murdered so many rabbis in Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea that it was almost a rabbi-free zone. When Herod got mad, he would do whatever he wanted to maintain power and control. Power and control. That was his kingdom. This is his legacy. That's what he's all about. Story number one. Story number two. Uh, when we get to the biblical narrative... Um, the, Matthew tells us about the birth of Jesus. King Herod's about 70 years old when we jump into that story. And he has a painful, painful kidney disease. He's very, very sick. And he is now in that last stage to consolidate, guarantee power, ensuring that the next generations are covered and that his name goes on. And then he gets this most disturbing of news for him. Just out of his mind, five miles, right? Five miles out of town in another town, there's a new king. And this new king is learning to walk. So now without further ado, let me give you the story from Matthew. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of, the, of King Herod, Magi, frequently, a.k.a., also known as wise men, from the east, come to Jerusalem. And imagine how this landed. You're in Jerusalem. These guys are walking around asking questions and saying, where, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? Where is he? Like people are like, what are you nuts? Quiet down. Herod's going to hear you. He's going to hear about this. And when he hears about it, everything goes wrong. When we saw the star, we saw a star when it rose in the east. We've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, with a little bit of that background from story number one, you understand a little bit about why Jerusalem was disturbed when Herod was disturbed. And when King Herod was disturbed, it was very dangerous for anybody, and it was very dangerous for everybody. He's an older man, limited time. He's in pain. His legacy is being threatened, publicly challenged now. So when he had called together all the uh, people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, uh, when they got that call, you know, they're scared, right? That's not just a regular day at the office. When they get that call, things are tense. And he asked them, where is this Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem? In Judea? They replied, and they kind of look at them with that raised eyebrow, right? Because 
everybody who's Jewish knows the answer to this question, right? And he goes, oh, right, you don't belong here. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is not what Herod wanted to hear. Worst news ever. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for that child. And as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may too go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen, when it rose, it rose up ahead of them, it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This word worship, you just sort of circle that one there. Worship feels very different in our modern era compared to the first century era. We frequently make worship synonymous with singing. It's not singing. Worship is recognizing that you are in the presence of someone who should cause you to have awe. And then you do whatever you need to do physically and mentally to surrender yourself, to submit yourself to them. Now, these are very wealthy men, and they've just been on a long, long journey. And they are in the presence of a baby. And that baby has no actual physical power. But because of who that baby was, they dropped to their knees and they worshiped. And five miles away, Herod is worried to death. Is that, has anybody seen those guys? I mean, they were here. You remember the guys. Where are they now? Nobody knows where they are? Okay, put some people out on the roads and you watch for those guys. As soon as you see those guys, you tell me. Because he's worried. He's worried about controlling things again. And his whole life has been built around preserve, protect, and control. Preserve, protect, control. Sounds familiar, right? I think where most of us fit into that same sort of mindset. So with his fists clenched, his body racked with pain, he's not about to bow his knee to some baby. He's not about to worship anyone. And that's why I think there's a little bit of Herod in all of us. Because I get this. I don't mind leveraging God if God is going to help me build my kingdom. I don't mind going to church and maybe even reading the Bible if all these things will help me. If all these things will facilitate and guarantee my future the way I want it. But the whole idea of writing God a blank check with my life Worshipping? Surrendering? That just doesn't come naturally to any of us. Because there's a little bit of Herod in all of us. 
And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country, to their country by another route. And when the angel had gone, <laughs> when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He says, get up. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and they left for Egypt. Drop down to verse 16. Story continues. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And when Herod was furious, all Jerusalem shook. He'd spent his whole life working to control these outcomes. No matter what happened, he always had been able to figure out a way to control the outcome. Even when he had bet on the wrong leader in Rome, he figured a way out. He was bold enough. He was crafty enough to even control that international outcome. But he got outsmarted by a baby with some poor Jewish parents. But Herod decided that no matter what would happen, he would not be thwarted. And certainly not by some new little boss baby king. So he went ahead and he gave orders that we just can't even grasp. He sent instructions to those soldiers that we can't even imagine them following through on. It is so far beyond our understanding that the only way to go through it is to read it quickly as if you didn't actually read it to see what was there. Outside of our understanding, but not outside the story of King Herod, he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and the vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. No one wants to point out the baby? Fine. Kill them all. Let's make it a round number. Let's grab a couple of years worth of baby boys. So they did. One horrible morning. One horrible afternoon that became one horrible evening. The soldiers rolled into this tiny little village, oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see the lie. But not for long, for every house was invaded by soldiers and searched, and they pulled out every little boy that looked like he would be about that age, and they murdered them. And no doubt, they murdered countless family members who resisted. But here's what happened. Soon, very soon, probably the same year, Herod died. He died a horrible, painful death with his kidney disease. It was so painful that he tried to commit suicide, and committing suicide in ancient times was difficult. And in first century, suicide was incredibly painful. The pain of his disease was so bad that he did, did not want to live, even though to stop living would cause him even more pain. And just as he was killing himself... His cousin walked into the room and saved him. So he continued to suffer. Just before he died, Herod gave another command. He says, go out and round up all of the wealthy, influential, distinguished men of Jerusalem. Round them all up, put them in prison. Now, 
in the hour that I die, you are to execute all of these influential men. Why? To ensure that there will be mourning on the day that I die. Because he knew that when he died, there was going to be a party in the streets of Jerusalem like they had never seen before. So Herod died. And they released all of those influential men. And the party was now even greater than he had feared. The text continues. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord uh, appeared in a dream to Joseph, who, who was in Egypt. And he said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. In this little twist of history, the man known as Herod the Great and Herod the Builder, who did so many amazing things, who oversaw such significant plans in his time. Herod the Great worked so hard to control his legacy and to manipulate power every chance he had to serve that wild ambition. Herod the Great is now only a footnote in the story of Jesus, overshadowed and dwarfed by a baby. Can you imagine trying to explain this to Herod just a couple of hours before he died? Like, hey, Herod, uh, I got some good news and I got some bad news, right? The good news is that 2,000 plus years from now, people will still be telling a story about you. Herod, all over the world in languages that don't exist yet in countries that haven't been found, that haven't been discovered, people will gather together as part of an annual major celebration and read a story about you. That's fantastic, right? Yeah, that's the good news, all right? The bad news is you are simply a B or a C-level character. You are a sidebar. You are a footnote in the story of the toddler who became the king, who became the savior of the world. And people aren't going to talk about your buildings. People are not going to mention the seaport. People won't talk about the aqueducts. You won't be known in most circles as Herod the Builder. You will be known as Herod the Butcher. And you were five miles away from the birth of the Son of God. You missed your opportunity. 80 years later, 80 years later, Herod is long gone. And in that time, Jesus grew up to be a man. He performed miracles in front of thousands of people. He died on the cross and he rose again to life. And then he ascended to be with his father in heaven. Caesar Augustus has come and gone. Nero has come and gone. And Herod's great temple has been completely destroyed. Everything just scraped off that temple mount. No two stones standing on another. And all that work and all those years, all that gold spent on the temple. Herod had spent so much time of his life developing and planning and building that temple. He was never even allowed to go into it because he wasn't Jewish. Now it's all gone. Eighty years later, John the Apostle. Remember John who we met Last time, 
We talked about him, John of the famous quartet, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John who took Mary from the foot of the cross to be his mom, and Mary took John to be her son at Jesus' instruction. John, who heard the birth narrative perhaps more than any other living person, knew it better than perhaps any other living person besides Mary. He took care of Mary until she died. John, who basically was there and saw every single miracle that Jesus did. John, who watched Jesus die. John, who peered into an empty tomb because he was told that somebody had stolen the body. John, who hung out and, and ate a meal on the beach with a resurrected Jesus. He's now an old man. And he looked back on all this narrative, all this history, and he's, I've seen it all firsthand. And John, just, John decides to sit down and try to summarize it. And here's what he said. And here's why this is so relevant for us right now. This is why you've got to pay attention to that thing in your heart, that thing in your soul, that thing in your mind, that every once in a while is nudging you back to faith, nudging you forward in your faith. He said, in him was life, past tense. And that life was the light of all mankind, past tense. Not not just Jews, but all mankind. And now he chooses to move past that past tense. This is what I saw. This is what I experienced. This is what I believe. And then he changes that to the present tense to send you a message and to send me a message. He says, the light shines, present tense, in the darkness right now. John is in exile on Patmos, and it looks, by any way you could look at it, that the Romans have won. It looks like the ancient Jewish temple, the sacrificial system, have all been completely destroyed. And they were, never to be resurrected. And even after all that darkness that John has been immersed in, he has been forced to swim in deep darkness for most, if not all, of his life. That light continues to shine. Right? Now, he says, And the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not blown it out. And that brings us to story number three. That brings us to you. What will your story be? What will your story be in relationship to the light of the world? Will this be a story where you resist? Or will you take your cue from the wise men, from the magi? Will your story be one of worship? Will it be a story where you spent your whole life, like Herod, trying to build a kingdom to control your kingdom instead of accepting an invitation to the participation in the kingdom of God? Will your story be that as you clung as tightly as you could to all the things that you have, all the things that you eventually would have to give up anyway? Or will it be a story about a man or a woman who surrendered everything that came their way because they realized it wasn't theirs to begin with? Will your story be my way or God's way? My will be done, thy will be done. The reason that there's a tension, there's a struggle, is because we are human and there is a little bit of Herod in all of us. But one day, and you know this, you don't want to think about this, but you know this, one day somebody, somewhere, will be forced to tell your story in relationship to the light of the world. They will either have to 
make something up, or they will be able to tell the true story. They can say that at some point in your life, even though you had drifted, even though you had wandered, even though you had struggled, even though you had lost hope, even though it seemed that life had just seemed to stomp all the faith and all the light out of you. At some point in your life, you recognized that there was still a light. There was still the life. Jesus Christ really had been your Savior all along, and you came back. Someday, somebody will have to tell your story in relationship to the light of the world. The question is, question that you have to answer is, what story do you want told? Here's the good news, okay? The darkness has not overcome that light in you. All the darkness that you've experienced, everything that you've gone through, all that has been done to you, all, the, all that you've seen, all the disappointment you've felt, all the unanswered prayers, all the things that didn't go your way, all of the people who didn't do what they were supposed to do, all the people that were mean to you, all of the hypocrisy, all of the darkness, still has not overcome the light that is in you. And that's why you're listening today. And that's why some of you might just be thinking that this message is getting on your nerves. That's why every once in a while, you find yourself having a conversation back and forth with a God that you're not even sure if you believe in anymore. It's happening because the darkness cannot, cannot, cannot overcome it. The darkness cannot blow it out. So I urge you, in this Christmas season, would you consider taking even a small baby step of re-engaging with the light of the world, the light of life, Jesus Christ. And as you take a step to re-engage or to perhaps engage for the first time, maybe to engage at a deeper level with that light of the world. Here's the thing, the Magi, they got it right. When you are in the presence of holiness, the only thing to do is to worship. So please take some time this season. I know it's busy. Think about this. What will it mean for you to re-engage? What will it look like for you to engage the first time? What would it look like for you to engage at a deeper level? Maybe saying that prayer because you haven't prayed in a long time. Maybe opening your Bible because you haven't opened your Bible in a long time. Maybe you'll need to go home and you say, okay, that's it. I need to get my family back to church. What is it that you are being prompted with that inner sense of I ought to do that? What is that next step for you? What next step should you take? We've got a whole section on our website, into1.ca, called Next Steps. They are not just first steps, but they are always next steps. Next steps are for everybody. And maybe you should listen to our base camp series, where we talk all about the understanding what it is to grow in a relationship to God. Faith from an adult's perspective instead of a child's perspective. How do we build that from the ground up? Base camp. I don't know what your next step should be. We're all different. 
But will you consider engaging, re-engaging, or deepening your engagement with the light of the world? Because that light is still in you. And I'm telling you that no matter what you do, no matter how far you wander, no matter what kind of sin you've got yourself involved in, that light is not going to go out. Please, be open to what God wants to do in and through you this Christmas. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the light of the world. Thank you that the darkest of all the dark could not put out that light. Every single one of us have a story right now. <laughs> we thought that the light went out and it comes back. It just bugs us and it won't leave us alone. We want to say thank you. Would you please do that thing in us that only you can do? Push past our resistance and push past our excuses. Push past whatever it is that we have put out in the way to separate us from you. Then help me to worship. Help me to surrender. Even in these next few moments, help us to say yes to you. To say yes to the light of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.